Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about General Tilney's pamphlets. We are talking Northanger Abbey. Catherine is visiting the titular Northanger Abbey. She has started to suspect that General Tilney is a gothic villain, spending this whole fantasy that he is either imprisoned or killed his wife, like no big deal. <laughs> Just a very normal thing to think about your boyfriend's dad. It's fine. It's totally fine. And this scene occurs after Henry Tilney has left the Abbey to take care of things at his home. And it's now just Eleanor and Catherine just having a quiet night at Ye Old Abbey. So I'm going to read a little section here. Um, so so they, they're having dinner. It's, you know, it's evening time. And so I'm going to read the section from the book that we're pulling from today. After an evening, the little variety and seeming length of which made her peculiarly sensible of Henry's importance among them, she was heartily glad to be dismissed though it was a look from the general not designed for her observation, which sent his daughter to the bell. When the butler would have lit his master's candle, however, he was forbidden. The latter was not going to retire. I have many pamphlets to finish, said he to Catherine, before I can close my eyes, and perhaps may be poring over the affairs of the nation for hours after you are asleep. Can either of us be more meetly employed? My eyes will be blinding for the good of others, and yours preparing by rest for future mischief." But neither the business alleged nor the magnificent compliment could win Catherine from thinking that some very different object must occasion so serious a delay of proper repose. To be kept up for hours after the family were in bed by stupid pamphlets was not very likely. There must be some deeper cause. And I love that she calls them stupid pamphlets. I love that. She's just like, this is so boring. What are you doing? <laughs> You're supposed to be my gothic villain. You Pamphlets? What? So this is the scene that we're really um, engaging with today. And it seems like a really bizarre scene because Catherine is even a little bit like pamphlets. I think that's why it's so fun to kind of dive into this a little bit deeper. So talk to us a little bit, Diane, about what pamphlets are in this time period. So pamphlets were and, and are unbound and therefore inexpensive booklets, and they were intended for wide circulation. So this was a way to circulate information cheaply and quickly on any topic that a person wanted. It was like the blog. I think that's time. an excellent parallel. Definitely. You know, you could commission a pamphlet so anybody could have one on all sorts of random topics. They could be weird one-offs, like a little bit of satire or cheeky funny stories or, you know, a bit of erotica, whatever. <laughs> and I think more famously, really powerful political tools. Yeah. So let's, I wanted to kind of contextualize this a little bit by talking about some famous examples of pamphlets, ones that we have all probably at least heard of. Um, the first one I wanted to mention was uh, Jonathan Swift's Modest Proposal. That one uh, was published in 1729. And in that one, that's the famous one where, where Swift is actually proposing, like, let's eat papal babies. But he doesn't actually mean it. It's a great sa satire. And it's a really kind of creepy satire. But it's one of the most famous kind of pamphlets that he has going. He also published the Drapier Letters, which was actually um, a series of pamphlets and letters where he was critiquing England's proposal to change the currency in Ireland. And he wrote pretty brutally honestly about how he thought that was a crap idea. So much so that a lot of people in the English government were like, who's writing these Drapier letters? Um, who's who's writing these? We've got to kind of throw them, throw them in the bin, you know? And Jonathan Swift was so beloved by the people in Ireland for things like this, that everybody in Ireland knew who the Drapier was, but nobody... Nobody told on Jonathan Swift. I think that's kind of cool. No one was going to give him up. But so he was he was a big proponent of pamphlets. So Jonathan Swift's one of our big examples. Here in the US, we might be a little bit more familiar with Thomas Paine's The Rights of Man, which was published in 1791. 
Another really powerfully influential one is Mary Wollstonecraft. She wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Woman in 1792. This is kind of like the foundational text of feminism, because this is Wollstonecraft basically saying, you think that women are stupid? Well, it's because you're teaching them to be stupid. That's kind of the premise. The last example I wanted to talk about was um, Elizabeth Hayrick's pamphlet called Appeal to the Hearts and Consciences of British Women, and that was published in 1828. And Elizabeth Hayrick is actually one of the most prominent female abolitionist campaigners in England, and she organized a mass sugar boycott, so incredible power behind pamphlets in this time period. So in order to best understand this reference to pamphlets in Northanger Abbey, we're going to do a bit of a deep dive into England's political history, but (laughs) we will try to make it as painless as possible. Starting first with a little bit of publication history on Northanger Abbey, So we have to remember that even though Northanger Abbey was not published until after Austen's death, it was written long before that. So some scholars suppose Austen started writing main parts of the text as early as 1794 and likely finished major writing in 1799. We even see in the advertisement for the novel, which Austen wrote in 1816, she says, quote, This little work was finished in the year 1803 and intended for immediate publication. Some observation is necessary upon those parts of the work which 13 years have made comparatively obsolete. The public is entreated to bear in mind that 13 have passed since it was finished, many more since it was begun, and that during that period, places, manners, books, and opinions have undergone considerable change. A little bit of a burn at her publisher there. (laughs) Definitely. This has got a whole backstory of why this wasn't published until now. (laughs) So this means that we actually have to look at what was happening in, in the 1790s rather than the early 1800s for the political context. And that is where we're headed next. That's right. That's right. So because we know that Austen was writing this kind of as a young woman, and in the 1790s particularly, we are going to be kind of looking a little bit here in our historical context at some of the stuff that was happening in the 1780s as well as 90s that are going to contextualize the pamphlets that we're talking about here today. To start out, in 1780, there were actually um, a series of riots called the Gordon Riots, which was several days of rioting in London that was motivated by anti-Catholic sentiment. Um, And these, these riots that happened might not have been something that Austen was kind of, as a young woman, particularly aware of. But some critics actually think that she might have actually read some accounts of the Gordon riots, because the depiction that she gives later on in the novel at Beecham Cliff, and Henry Tilney gives a description of riots that's actually really close to what actually happened in the Gordon riots. So there's a possibility that there's kind of that influence going in on Northanger Abbey as well. So this idea that the Gordon riots riots that happened in 1780 are kind of setting off this 20-year period of crazy kind of political upheaval. Then in 1789, we are getting the French Revolution begins. And then there's the subsequent reign of terror well into the 90s, and the king and queen are beheaded in 1793. So there's a lot of political upheaval going on in France. And of course, because France is so close to England, England is a little bit nervous. They're watching what's going on over there with a lot of concern about whether that's going to spill over into England. We can see you just over the channel, and it makes us a little bit uncomfy. nervous. Yes. And so that means that throughout the 1790s, there's always this constant tension of like, is that unrest going to spill over here? How do we prevent that from happening? How are we going to kind of control this? And that sets up the whole decade in which Austen would have been writing Northanger Abbey. So to kind of give some more specific examples, um, we have in 1794, which is again, where some critics think maybe Austen actually started writing this novel, we start to see some riots again happening in London, where government recruiting houses were destroyed. We actually see the suspension of habeas corpus, which means, you know, that you don't have to have a reason to detain someone and put them in in jail. Then the next year in 1795, we have the food riots. So there's a grain shortage, high cost of wheat, 
But a particular notice is in 1795, King George's carriage was actually attacked on his way to open Parliament. So the unrest in England, and London in particular, is very real. And this sparks what comes becomes known as the Two Acts, this kind of infamous Two Acts that were passed in December of 1795 that really set the tone for the rest of the decade. And this is where we really get into the General Tilney stuff. <laughs> so in the first of the Two Acts is the Sedition, Seditious Meetings Act of 1795, which basically says groups of more than 50 can't meet anymore. There's too much potential for sedition. As a parallel to that act is the Treason Act of 1795. And I'm going to read a little section of kind of the verbiage from this. This act makes it high treason to, and then here I have the quote, within the realm or without compass, imagine, invent, devise, or intend death or destruction or any bodily harm tending to death or destruction, maim or wounding, imprisonment or restraint of the person of the king. So that's like a huge list of things, but it's basically like anything that could even conceivably be perceived as a threat to the king or the kingdom is now a treason. You cannot criticize the monarchy at, at all. all. Yeah. So this is this is basically making it so like <laughs> anything that could even be slightly perceived this way can be reported to the home office and then it becomes like a big problem <laughs> for you. Like you could be um, and the penalties for this could be up to, you know, obviously prison time because habeas corpus has been um, suspended. But it could also result in like seven years of transportation. They send you to a penal colony like Australia. You have to watch what you say about the king. And they have big spiders down there. <laughs> Among one of the many reasons. I love all of our Australian listeners, but I'm just saying, you guys have some really big spiders. Big spiders. Not fun. <laughs> so all of this is happening in England. Also, just one kind of last rebellion to kind of round out this time period. We also have the Irish Rebellion of 1798, which was a rebellion that happened in Ireland. And it was supposed to be something that the French came over and actually supported that rebellion. They were going to overthrow uh, the English government in Ireland. And that was kind of one of England's greatest fears, because then they'd have France on one side, Ireland on the other side, and they'd be kind of boxed in by rebellion and, you know, people who don't like them. So... This is the time period and this is the political context in which Austin is writing. And so it really does kind of set up some really interesting ways to think about pamphlets, especially in context of this Treason Act of 1795. Specifically, the Treason Act makes it essentially illegal to discuss constitutional discontent. So again, you're not allowed to complain about the monarchy. You're not allowed to complain about the government, anything. It's just it's not allowed. You're not allowed to say anything mean about King George. He gets his feelings hurt really easily. <laughs> so because of that, basically everybody was a spy and everybody was under suspicion. This comes to the foreground in Northanger Abbey, specifically when Henry Tilney comes across Catherine after she has kind of wandered into his mom's bedroom and she's like been fantasizing that he, that General Tilney killed his wife. She's like, by the way, I'm pretty sure that your dad killed your mom. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry you caught me having these suspicions. And she's, and, and like the fact that she's even willing to say that to him, I just... It's so hard for me to read that passage. Oh my gosh. It is painful <sighs> because he's just looking at her like, what? <laughs> I kind of liked you. And now I'm just like, what? What's happening? Yeah. Yeah. So right after he's like, after he's figured out that that's what she's been thinking, he gives her this kind of reprimand that actually can kind of, t again, contextualizes the political climate that they're living in. So I'm going to read a, a section of this. He says, Dear Miss Moreland, consider the dreadful nature of the suspicions you have entertained. What have you been judging from? Remember the country and the age in which we live. Remember that we are English, that we are Christians. Consult your own understanding, your own sense of the probable, your own observation of what is passing around you. Does our education prepare us for such atrocities? Do our laws connive at them? 
Could they be perpetrated without being known in a country like this, where the social and literary intercourse is on such footing, where every man is surrounded by a neighborhood of voluntary spies, and where the roads and newspapers lay everything open? Dear Miss Moreland, what ideas have you been admitting? He's like, what do you think we are, French? (laughs) Pretty much, right? Like, he's very much so saying, like, this could never happen in England. Not in jolly old England. (laughs) At the same time that he's admitting, like, everyone here in England is a spy. And he's probably talking very specifically about his father in this context. Yeah, so General Tilney needing to read his pamphlets by candlelight into the wee hours of the morning, which also I love how when he says that to Catherine, he's also kind of like, oh, because, you know, you young things like I have important man work to do. I'll be staying up late to read my pamphlets. (laughs) So basically, General Tilney is kind of operating as an amateur spy here, right? He's reading these pamphlets in order to censor and report back to the home office if there is any seditious content, like anybody who's trying to stir up unrest against the king. He could be directly responsible for people going to jail if he perceives them as in conflict, you know, with holding up the monarchy and holding up sort of, this is the way we do things here in England. But it's so funny because, come on, people, like we know that General Tilney, he's got pretty high self-esteem, right? He's he's somebody who feels like he's really very competent and knows what he's doing. (laughs) But he's also the guy who's so gullible, who thinks that Catherine is some kind of heiress because John Thorpe, John Thorpe, really? You got your intelligence from John Thorpe? (laughs) It's so good. He hears John Thorpe talking about how, you know, Catherine's going to be like so rich. And so because of that, he's just like, yes, I'm going to get her together with Henry. It's going to be great. So of all the people that you want doing this kind of work. He's also got like anger management issues, right? Like he has no middle ground. He is this like grump all the time. And then he's like trying to be really charming to to Catherine. So he's really creepily schmoozy, right? That's one mode that he's got. And then like creepily grumpy those are the, those are his only two modes because he has no, like like no no ability to maintain any kind of level-headedness like is that the guy you want responsible for for reading seditious content what's going to take to to set this guy off i feel like this is this is a bad idea him being a wealthy landowner at this time politically he is the person who would be interested in this oh yeah he's not the kind of guy who's going to think that irish people should have rights yeah that's not in his wheelhouse at all you know and it makes sense that even though he's like we said because he listens to john thorpe he's clearly not like really good at sifting through (laughs) intelligence right it makes sense that he would be into this both by virtue of you know his status as a landowner but also just by his personality like we see he's creepily obsessed with his children's movements and lives, extremely controlling. Really, he sees himself as like, you know, the puppet master. Yeah. yeah. But again, it's not like he's some kind of cool international James Bond spy. You know what I mean? <laughs> he's not like going into other countries and like infiltrating the French or anything. Yeah. He's basically a nosy tattling on his neighbor kind of spy. He is the annoying neighborhood biddy in a cozy mystery <laughs> who always knows everyone's business or at least thinks that he knows everyone's business. Yeah. And he's going to send that report to the home office, whether he has evidence for that nonsense or not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he's, he's also like, he's, he's a general. He's someone who should, who, who should be invested in the political climate of the yeah. period, right? He and his son are both part of England's military. And that also means that anything he says would carry weight Exactly, well. exactly. So, and, and so this is a guy who is just, you know... He has too much power, he has okay? way too much power. He's actually a terrifying kind of figure here. Because, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny in the, in the context of the novel. When I read it the first time, and I think that this isn't, isn't an uncommon reading, he kind of just comes off as like this like stick villain where he's just kind of a flat yeah. character 
he's just the bad guy because he's a bad guy kind of thing. But the more you dig into this kind of idea of like, no, he's a general, he's a landowner, he's really oppressive in his family, he's spying on his neighbors, like he becomes actually quite a terrifying, tyrannical presence in the novel. So there's a section from Shinobu Minma's article, General Tilney and Tyranny, North Angarabi, where they describe really clearly why his presence is kind of so problematic. So the article says, if his nightly duty is to inspect pamphlet literature for seditious contents, the phrase, for the good of others, takes on a very sinister connotation. For a man like the general, a cause supplies a pretext and a cover, a pretext to impose one's own will and opinions or principles, and a cover to conceal selfish purposes from oneself as well as from others. Indeed, we could say that the self-deception or self-absorption under the pretext of some worthy cause is an attribute of tyranny, and those who believe themselves fighting for a great cause are capable of any action, however outrageous or cruel that action may be. General Tilney's behavior illustrates the mechanism of tyranny. Jane Austen believed that fundamentally the same mechanism was at work in the political world of both France and England in the 1790s. So basically the idea here being that Tilney is actually a very big tyrannical presence, not only in his family or as a landowner, but also as a big representative of this larger moment in English history. It's, it's just so funny because Northanger Abbey feels like a very lighthearted and satirical work. Right. And it is. And it is. It absolutely is. But at the same time, it's also deeply rooted in this intensely volatile political situation. And you can tell that even though Austen, as a young woman, a very young woman and young author, is picking up on the political tensions and putting them in this text in really unexpected ways. It's satire. And satire is going to have a little bit of bite. Oh, yeah. And sure, you know, I think what most people take away is kind of her making fun of gothic novels and tropes and sort of being taken away by that. Which is a completely fair way to read the book. Yeah. But there's, you know, there's a lot of this other stuff going on as well. Again, if you're kind of like peeling back the layers and really thinking about what was going on at the time. And again, the fact that you know, in that preface that she yeah. wrote for publication, she doesn't just focus on, oh, and gothic novels were super popular. Yeah. I mean, the way that she phrases that introduction to me very much reads as, I want you to make note of what was going on culturally and politically at the time that I was writing this. Yeah. I'm sure some people would say that's assuming too much, but welcome to literary studies. Yeah. Well, I think Austen is a very savvy writer, too. So the fact that she's drawing attention to that, like, I mean, she could just as easily have just like not mentioned, hey, I wrote this. 13 years ago, but she's very specifically not just not just like throwing <laughs> shade at her publishers by saying, you know, it took me a while to get this published, but, but like she's specifically saying like the manners, the time, the topics from that period need to be viewed as relevant to to my piece. She's she's now framing it as a piece of historical fiction. So there's this great quote from Robert Hopkins, his article, General Tilney and Affairs of State, The Political Gothic of Northanger Abbey. And he says, quote, General Tilney's duties at night were as an inquisitor, surveying possibly seditious pamphlets, either for the Association for the Preservation of Liberty and Property, or after 1793, for the Home Office. Furthermore, General Tilney is a politicized man writ large, a pompous ass whose inquisitorial role engendered fear, distrust, and suspicions is thoroughly contemptible. Like mic drop on General Tilney. Robert? Hopkins has feelings about General Tilney. <laughs> and I enjoy them, for one. <laughs> the way that he describes him uh, in the role of Inquisitor, you know, that's just, you can see General Tilney is the kind of man who would really relish that role. He's like, bring out the thumb screws, you know, he is all about that energy. Yeah, anything that helps him feel like he can assert power. 
this is like some real, I mean, obviously I know that that is set a few decades prior, but some real like outlander energy going on. <laughs> it's true. I mean, well, and, and you know, part of this unrest that's happening in England, I mean, the Battle of Culloden happened just, you know, 50 years earlier. So it's not like this isn't on the radar too. <laughs> yeah. And part of what we're seeing, like even in this time period, and certainly, you know, by the time that Northanger Abbey was published, was there'd been a lot of frustration over King George III's son, who was known as, you know, the Prince Regent, hence the Regency period, who then becomes King George IV. He was known as like a wastrel, just horrible with money, like spending money left and right when there were people who couldn't afford food. And so people were not into it. And, you know, of course, the people who in the palace are thinking, oh, they literally heads being rolled over right. in France is making me really nervous over here. Yeah. And so that's and that's why those sedition um, and treason laws come down so hard. They, I mean, they are trying to, like, really suppress any kind of rumblings that are happening because they do not yeah. want that stuff to spill over into England. They're terrified by that. So these pamphlets that General Tilney is combing through, they really were like the social media of this time period. This is how you got any kind of message. This is your one chance to have a platform where you could have a kind of more mass readership. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's your version of being the town crier. It's the social media. Absolutely. There's actually, there was a recent tweet that kind of mentioned that our current time where we're saying like, yeah, I feel like this this meeting could have been an email. Somebody that does 1700 history said, ah, I, I think that the thing would have been, this town meeting could have been in a pamphlet. I think, I think it's just, <laughs> it's such a pithy way of, of kind of pinpointing what the power that pamphlets had, basically. Which like, speaking of town meetings, I do have to say that all of this really gives me Taylor Dosey from Gilmore Girls <laughs> kind of vibes. Stars Hollow is definitely a pamphlet kind of town. <laughs> Absolutely. And he would have he would have kind of like the stranglehold on the pamphlet market. I think Dozy would be very interested in that. <laughs> so let's kind of just briefly bring this back into uh, Northanger Abbey specifically, and how this might have had kind of an impact in the way that we understand the story now. So Catherine is, has been spending <laughs> the majority of the novel thinking about gothic fiction, right? That's that's what she's she's thinking. Everything's like the mysteries of Udolpho. And so when she's talking about riots, she's talking about mysteries of Udolpho, even though there are actual physical riots happening within England, you know, within recent memory. Um, and so it's kind of funny to me that she has all these flights of fancy about gothic fiction. It's like, oh, these, tor- these torrid ideas. And that she feels like she has to go to fiction to find that sort of drama, even though she's living in a time period where like much more graphic stuff is actually happening yeah. all around her. But she's like, no, no, no. The pamphlets are stupid. Um, he's obviously a murderer. <laughs> and I think that's part of the greatness of Austin's satire, right? Like she could have just done sort of like a flat, oh, women be getting carried away by books mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But she's really doing this kind of clever thing of getting carried away by gothic fiction while at the same time, look at what's going on all around you. Yeah. And the fact that Tilney has to basically like have a moment and be like, Catherine, why are you living in a gothic novel? <laughs> Do you not see what's happening around you? Um, and he's trying to like bring her down to down to earth, even though he's actually still drawing attention to the fact that there's like... His kind of version of that is, don't you realize we live in England? And let me like essentially say that all of these kind of scary things are happening, but don't even worry about don't it. Worry it's about England. It. It's England. It's okay. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Spy networks are not a problem for us. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's a very it's a very weird reprimand because he contextualizes it back in English history and context where it's it's actually quite terrifying. But yeah, it's the kind of thing where you're like, is that supposed to make me feel better? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Because I think I'm actually more scared of your dad than I was when I thought that he murdered your mom. Right, when he was just this kind of inept murderer, it was okay. But now he's a terrifying inquisitor. I thought he was a mustache-twirling villain, but now I realize that he's getting people sent away to live with the scary spiders. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know that that's comforting. And I love how, like, the next scene when Catherine and Tilney are together, they're like, no no big deal, everything's fine. They just pretend that that whole awkward encounter didn't happen. So where else, Diane, do we see these things? Uh, do, do Where else do we see pamphlets occurring in either Austin's works or in other adaptations that we're kind of maybe culturally familiar with? Well, I don't know, Zan, if you've heard of this little thing called Bridgerton. It's kind of a sensation. Tell me some more about this Bridgerton you speak of. <laughs> So if you've seen the show Bridgerton, Lady Whistledown and her scandal sheet, which is, you know, essentially a pamphlet, obviously plays a large role in that show and also in the books, if you have read the books as well. Yeah, it's it's actually a really massive plot device. Yeah, I mean, people are making decisions and choices based off of things that they read in the Lady Whistledown papers. Yeah, and Lady Whistledown, those papers are actually based on real scandal sheets. Those things really did exist in England. So it's not actually a very unrealistic depiction to think that these pamphlets are being disseminated, people's drama and gossip is being printed about, and then people are reacting to it. That's a very real thing that's happening. And I love how Bridgerton makes that very tangible. So one that I was thinking of, another kind of cultural connection, is actually in the musical Hamilton. And I was listening to that right before we started recording. And I was listening to the the track that's called the Reynolds pamphlet. And that's the one where Hamilton decides to outline the affair that he's had in order to kind of like deflect He's trying to get out in front of the gossip, basically. Yeah, yeah. And yet it's this, like, he's giving a detailed account of his affair with a married woman. <laughs> so it's it seems like a very ill-advised thing for him to do, but he does it. And so in, in, the, in the musical, that's the one where everybody's like, well, he's never going to be president now. <laughs> <laughs> Another connection that this was making me think about is how if you read a lot of historical romance which I do, (laughs) that spying on neighbors and sedition and fighting against smugglers, like all of that, lots of talk about France, like those are all sort of hallmark plots of historical romance. And when I tell you, Zan, the number of books where the hero turns out to have a big secret (laughs) and the secret is that he works for the home office as some kind of spy Mm. agent, but like, but like a cool spy, not the, not like this General Tilney, you know, (laughs) pamphlet reader tattling on your neighbor. This is like a, you know, legit, like he's infiltrated other governments, Mm, you know, mm -hmm. this is the more James Bond version. Yeah, Yeah, this is the sexy version. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, it's one of my favorite tropes, especially when the heroine is a blue stocking who happens to have some sort of like scientific expertise (laughs) that is the exact knowledge the hero needs to capture the bad guys or whatever. So she's armed with like her Mary Wollstonecraft and scientific skill. (laughs) She's like a geologist or she's really into sea life. I I know the cove that they will be coming into. Oh, (laughs) yes. Yes. The smuggler's cove. I like it. I'm like an intrepid Regency lady rock climber or something. I don't know. Like, whatever. I don't care. It's all good. But anything that kind of is going to pair up these two that have, like, combined the power to, like, stop France in its tracks. I love it. And oftentimes there will be a scene where some kind of information, tension or drama that's being escalated because, like, something is going through the network that is getting back to our main characters and they're like, we must act now. (laughs) Definitely. So the pamphlets are kind of omnipresent. And that's and I think that's why I enjoy getting to do this deep dive into pamphlets is because it seems like this is a very innocuous thing. But then once you realize, like, pamphlets are everywhere in this time period. And they do have all of this power to make these kind of plot points happen. But they, you know, they were real. 
Listen, if you were looking for just deep dives into obscure little like one sentences in Austin that you have in the past glanced over, you have come to the right place. That is what we are here for, my friends. (laughs) That is the service we provide. So if you have any thoughts on this episode or possibly topic suggestions for other little obscure bits Mm -hmm. in the novel that you haven't considered until now, you can find us on Instagram at thethingaboutaustin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And we have so appreciated all the support. If you feel compelled and you haven't already done so, please consider hitting the five stars in Apple Podcasts, leaving us a nice review. It really helps us out. And stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll be actually talking with our first guest, and we're very excited about this. We'll be talking with Dr. Ellen Campbell, and we'll be talking about the Rushworth's divorce. So we will talk to you then. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.